Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. There was time, so our, our manager in Dayton at the time, his name was Donnie Scott, and Donnie was a catcher and, and knew the position. And Donnie was in charge of kind of charting what I did back there. So he had to chart like every single ball that I dropped. And there would be times or games where I, I literally would drop like 15 balls. Like they would just knock out of my glove and I would drop them. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode, I am talking to former all-star catcher Devin Mesoraco. Not just saying this, but this is one of my favorite episodes I've ever had on the show. Devin was awesome. Took a lot of time to chop it up with me. It's a really good look at life from behind the dish in professional baseball. How difficult it is to adjust, how much stuff you have to learn to be a big league catcher, especially after being drafted out of high school, and how much the physical aspect of the position matters. We talked through Devin's career being a first-round pick who nearly played his way out of every Reds top prospect list during his first few years of pro ball. He righted the ship, played in a futures game, eventually an all-star game before injuries started to take their toll. We talk about struggling when your body won't cooperate, and we also talk about what it's like to catch Jacob deGrom, which is uh, highly recommend sticking around for. Uh, he calls, he talks about how Jacob was was the best he'd ever seen, and that was like five years before what we're getting now. So pretty, pretty incredible look at a guy who's doing incredible things. Uh, very much appreciate Devin giving me as much time as he did. Uh, and, and being really candid with it, with this conversation. So hope it's an episode that everyone enjoys. Episodes of Phenom of the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Go check out past interviews. They're all pretty much evergreen. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Go check out Trade Deadline Recaps, Prospect Hot Sheet, and the new Weekly Hot Sheet Pod. There's lots of great stuff going on at BA. And with that... Let's talk to Devin Mesoraco. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom the Farm, he was the 15th overall pick in the 07 draft by the Reds out of Puxatawney High School, former big league backstop Devin Mesoraco. Devin, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, so I want to get into the kind of the obvious but low-hanging question that that intro begs, uh, the, you know, the question everyone wants to know. Do people in Puxatani care that much about Groundhog Day? Like, is Groundhog Day overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Depends on who you ask, for sure. So, um, some there's certainly some fanatical people when it comes to uh, Punxsutawney Phil that are from Punxsutawney. The vast majority, uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I don't think that they care a whole lot. I was probably in the latter group where, you know, if you slept in you probably missed uh everybody in town and all the theatrics and all that and you just kind of went about your day as normal and that was kind of what i did for the most part okay so it wasn't like a you got to be downtown for groundhog day kind of thing when you're growing up no no not for me i didn't i didn't really care but uh you know i was focused on sports or whatever else i had going on at the time uh but it's good for the town right like it, it brings people in Otherwise, nobody would ever see it. So uh, 
it's good for the town and you know it brings some some commerce in as well as far as people uh shopping and supporting the businesses so it helps yeah every town needs a thing so let's let's go back to your career uh coming up when did you first realize you had a future at the next level of baseball whether that be college baseball or pro ball yeah so uh in high school there you know i started on varsity as a freshman and I was one of the better players at that time. So, you know, I, I think that um, I, I felt pretty good about, you know, having an opportunity to play in college. Um, but I never at that point had thought about pro ball, right? It was always, okay, let's try to get a scholarship somewhere. You know, at that time, things were a little bit different as far as travel ball, right? It wasn't, uh, I, I grew up playing Legion baseball. I grew up playing locally. Uh, it wasn't until probably the summer before my junior year that I actually started to go to bigger tournaments and uh, things of that nature, you know, the East coast pro and the area code games. And, you know, it, it was just playing ball for me. And I tried to, my, my dad was a coach and he had me on as many local teams as what I could be on just to get out there and play and get reps and, uh, you know, try to get better. So uh, it was always focused on, college always on college hey go get a scholarship do good in school and and let's see what happens and try to get a college scholarship so it became you know that that ended up happening and I committed to the University of Virginia there the summer uh, of my junior year and really didn't think a whole lot about pro ball you know it was always okay let's go to college let's develop and then see what happens uh what took you behind the plate like, was that, was that initially a desire thing from you or was it an early age thing of, Hey, he can actually catch the ball. Let's put him there. Like what made you a catcher? Not at all. So my dad was a catcher in college. He caught at a local division two school. Uh, and I played everywhere growing up. I played shortstop. I played outfield. Um, you know, those were really the main, I played second base, played left field, center field, um, just wherever they needed me really but I wasn't necessarily the most athletic or the most uh smooth in the field I could catch the ball and throw it over but I wasn't the most fleet of foot either so it kind of became all right well you know catcher is probably a spot that fits in and this was my dad's call right he he always worked with me back there and you know it, once I got into high school it was like all right you're gonna catch you're gonna catch so um yeah, it was really his call as far as let's put you back there and let's. I had a strong arm, right? So that was kind of the the other component where, well, you could throw some guys out, so it would make sense to have you back there, and that looks like the position where you would be able to develop the most. And and that was again my father's call. I was going to ask about if you always had a strong arm because uh, you had had TJ as as a sophomore, and it's kind of in a in a, in a growth kind of, kind of period, just as like physical maturity. So I was going to, was the, was the arm there because B on your BA draft report, you're popping a 70 arm grade 70 on the, the 2080 scale. So obviously a strong arm. So was, was it there before the surgery? Or was it like a rookie of the year situation where you, you know, you rehabbed and then, you know, with that a year, you're 17, 18, and suddenly you're, you're firing BBs. No, I always had a good arm, right? Like, uh, I, I always could throw the ball hard. You know, and I, I mean, I tore my uh, Tommy John ligament there pitching. So I'd never pitched, right? I, I didn't like to pitch. I couldn't throw strikes. I would just throw it all over the place. And uh, I started to dial it in there kind of as a sophomore in high school. So 
I would catch uh, the first six innings and then come in and close out the games. And mm, I think it was in the state playoffs there of my sophomore season. I came in to close out the game and I just felt a pop in my arm. And, you know, we ended up getting MRI and check it out by some doctors and it was torn and had to have Tommy John. But yeah, I always had a strong arm. So like growing up, I always long tossed a lot. I would try to throw the ball as far as I could. Right. And you see the kids nowadays kind of wind up and throw it into the net. And to me, you know, that's the same thing as long tossing. Like it's, it's uh it's just a different version of it. And that's kind of, I, I, as far back as the guy could go, I would try to throw it as far as I could. And I think that that helped, you know, develop that arm strength. And, but that was something that I always did. I was always just trying to throw the ball as far as I could. Did you get run on much your senior year of high school? Oh, well, not a lot. No, not a lot. I mean, uh, I walked a lot and didn't have many guys steal. I was batting lead off because, you know, uh, I would walk and then the other guys would try to drive me in because not very many schools would pitch to me. So uh, I think I ended, ended up with like 60 at bats, you know, it just because I had 40 some walks or 50 walks, but uh, the steals now, nah, nobody really stole a lot. So with that, your senior year, I assume you're starting to get lots of attention, guys in the stands, whatever. And especially if you're not getting pitched to a lot, how did you, how did you kind of grapple with that, with not trying to overdo it, not trying to, you know, impress these guys who are in the stands. And then how did you get a sense of what your draft stock looked like, especially getting into like May, early June? I think at the beginning of the year, I was probably thought of as, you know, maybe third or fifth round guy. And I probably wouldn't have signed for that. Right. I, I had a strong commitment. I was excited to go to the University of Virginia. They were kind of an up and coming program at that time where, you know, I think that they were on the cusp of the College World Series, but hadn't quite broke through yet. Uh, same coaches. They're still there now. And uh, I, I really felt strongly like, hey, man, this, I'm, I'm excited to go there. Uh, they have great school that I'm, I'm, I really want to do that. And, you know, whatever happens with the draft happens. Uh, so like the first game, there was like, we had no idea what to expect. Right. I mean, I had done the East coast pro and people knew about me at that point. Uh, there was like 20 scouts and it was like, Holy smokes, you know, this is, this is probably not what we expected, but there was 20 guys there. I hit a couple home runs you know, they all chat with your folks to kind of get a sense of your family and your upbringing. And uh, I remember somebody saying, man, you know, this, this guy is better than, uh, than Neil Walker. So Neil Walker was a first round pick from uh, Pine Richland High School down here in Pittsburgh. And uh, that kind of caught my attention, right? Like, you know, Neil was the, uh, I don't know, the 15th, 20th pick in the country. Like, uh, well, that's, that's a good thing for somebody to say, I guess. Uh, and he was like, for that period of time, the gold standard for Northeast high school draft prospects. He was the guy, right? Like Neil was the guy. Neil was the guy that made it possible for me. The guy from Millville hadn't come around yet. Yeah. Like it, you didn't, you didn't hear many guys go in the first round, especially from Western Pennsylvania. So anytime that somebody mentioned Neil's name, it was like, that, that really got my attention. So uh, somebody said that and, then as the year progressed, you know, more and more people come in and then you decide to go with an agent and they get some more information. And then you see the mock drafts and things of like that. Holy smokes. Well, well, that looks good. You know, I'm, I'm into that. And uh, it just kind of kept going from there. Right. I think that 
it wasn't what my, what my expectations were, right? Going into your, my expectations were go to college and, and uh, see what happens there. But uh, it, it was a, a really cool process and something that, you know, was obviously life-changing, but something that me and my family would never forget. You end up signing, you end up getting drafted by the Reds 15th overall. You signed for like one five, one five and some change. How, how much of that process, like how does that, that marriage of team slot value signing bonus come to be is how much of, is it you putting out, this is what I want versus teams calling you and saying, if we take you here, will you sign for this? Like, how do you, cause with the, the MOB draft and it, you know, we're, we're right off of it. It just happened when we're recording. Like it's such an interesting process of this guy, you know, it, the, the numbers have to fit versus like the NFL draft. It's like, Hey, we need a linebacker. Let's draft this guy. Yeah. So if, if you, you know, first of all, if throughout uh, all the drafts, high school catchers, right? Like that's an impossible demographic. Like nobody at this point, like I can't even imagine that I would have been picked where I was, right? Just because uh, I was a high school catcher. I had already turned 19. Like I was an old draft for a high school player, a uh, guy in the Northeast. And I think, you know, maybe to some extent, people think that Northeastern players are somewhat undervalued. But uh, I was lucky to get drafted at 15th overall when I did, right? And I, I think that, you know, kudos to – Chris Buckley, he was the scouting director at the time, and they took a chance on me. But, you know, throughout the process, we didn't necessarily give out a number. Like, uh, we just kind of, hey, wait and see, wait and see. And as it got down to the draft, it became what we were telling teams is he will sign for where he's expected to go. So, um basically I just wanted to get slot. You know, I, I thought that my talent would dictate where I'm going to go and I'm going to sign for slot at that point. Uh, and I was fine with that. You know, I, I think that uh, there was a handful of teams uh, that picked a little bit earlier that I had worked out for uh, prior to the draft there, the couple of days before the pirates were one, I think they picked fifth. The, uh, the Orioles picked sixth. Uh, we felt pretty good in the teens with, uh, the Reds, you know, I knew that they had interest. We didn't work out for them. Um, the Toronto Blue Jays, I believe, had two picks somewhere in the teens. And the Phillies, right? I, we felt really good about the Phillies. Phillies picked 19. I, I felt pretty strongly that, like, I would worked out for them. Everything was very positive that we were hearing through my agent. Uh, we felt very strongly that we weren't going to get past the Phillies. So, I, we were just telling teams, hey, you know, he, he will sign for where he's going to get picked and, you know, let let it be at that. And it, we got a little bit of pushback, but, you know, it, it ended up working out very well. We, at the time, we didn't know how interested the Reds were. You know, the, the day of the draft, we had a high school playoff game. And um, obviously, at that point, everybody is kind of preparing and they're in their draft rooms and getting geared up for it. And uh the only scout that showed up that day, and I didn't even know he was there. Uh, my parents said something after the game, but it was a red scout. So Jeff Brookins was the red scout and uh, Jeff and I have gotten close over the years and he, he just recently passed away. Uh, but Jeff was the only scout there and he was just there to make sure that I didn't get hurt or anything bad happened to me. Uh, 
make sure I showed up for the game. I don't know, but he was the only guy in the, in the building that day. And, you know, it was kind of fortuitous that they ended up picking me. So it was, it was pretty cool, but that was kind of the, the whole process of the draft. We had, uh, we won did, the high school. Did you get, I was going to say, did you get drafted during the game or was that afterwards? No. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell that story. That's pretty good. That was pretty fun. So we had, uh, we played in Eltoona, Pennsylvania, which is kind of in the middle state. We played, I want to say, Town or something, which is kind of on the other side of State College. And we won the game, I think, pretty fairly easily. We had we won state championship there a year. You know, that was the only – Punxsutawney isn't really known for uh, athletic – that was the only state championship, I think, that the school has ever won. But we had some good pitchers and uh, – you know, I, I was a small part of the team and we, we just, we had a really good group, but we won the state playoff game. There was a bar down the street that uh, we had some TVs. This was the first year that the draft was televised, 2007. Never been televised before. Otherwise you just log on to a draft tracker or whatever and check things out. Uh, so first year is televised. We were watching on TV. I think there was only like one or two players actually at the draft and everybody from the game came over. So this place was just full. Like there, it was the entire town of Punxsutawney. All, me and all my teammates kind of had our own table right in the front. My parents, my parents came up there as they kind of realized that I was going to be picked by the Reds. We kind of got word before that they were going to select me. So they came up there at that point. But we were just having a ball. You know, we were, it, it was a day that you'll never forget. Just a ton of fun. I got to spend it with my teammates. I got to spend it uh, with everybody in town, basically. It was a blast. Was that the game you won state? Or did you have to get drafted and then you had you still had high school games? Right. We got drafted and then still had high school games. So that was the quarterfinal i want to say that was the state quarterfinal uh i don't think it was the game before the uh state championship so we had a couple more but yeah that was that was a it was a fun ride for sure i'm sure i'm sure well you you wrap up you win that state championship game you sign with the red sign early enough to get 40 games in the gcl you're talking about like the, just the demographic of high school catcher it's a riskier demographic uh there's always the, will this guy stay behind the plate? Because even from like 18 to 22, just your body changes. Like you don't know what a guy is going to look like in five years. Um, and that it's a, that's a position that requires a certain level of physical fitness or, or certain, certain physical match for it. We, we talk about guys who, you know, in the draft, this guy should be able to stick behind the plate or he might be able to stick behind the plate or he might have to move to outfield or something like that. How much growth mentally, physically skill wise has to happen from signing day, especially at a high school to big league debut to actually become a big league catcher. Oh gosh. Um, an unbelievable amount, right? Like certainly there's some physical aspects of that I would say the vast majority is the mental side of things and learning the game. And, and this may be a little bit ahead of where we're going, but, when you're in the minor leagues, the mental side of things is not that uh, – and it may be more now because they're doing more scouting reports. They're doing more advanced scouting in the minor leagues. But when you get to the big leagues, right, like the guy on the mound, his career is on your shoulders because you're the guy back there doing the homework. You're the guy back there calling the pitches. You're the guy back there reading the scouting reports. In that side of things uh, – was something that took time for me to learn 
in the big leagues, right? And that was the biggest adjustment out of all this, uh, you know, physically, mentally, like figuring out how to help those guys out on the mound and, and really take uh, ownership of their career was the, the biggest challenge, I think, uh, from for me developmental wise. Uh, but you, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like there's so many things, the, right. You have to understand the mechanics of the position. You have to understand, uh, how to work on your body so that you can stay behind the plate. You, there's, you have to maintain your arm strength. You, you got to, um, be able to block balls. So you have to have the right amount of flexibility and agility back there. And, and then on top of that, you got to hit, right? Like, I mean, you ain't going to get called to the big leagues uh, if you ain't going to produce. So uh, there is a lot of – a very large checklist that a, a, a minor league catcher or somebody who was just drafted a catcher that you have to kind of check through each box to get to the point where you can be a productive big leaguer. And uh, all that stuff was very challenging, right? Like I, I struggled initially. It was a, it was a very difficult challenge coming from the baseball that I had played to the GCL. Like that was quite an adjustment. And you go into Florida and it's a thousand degrees. And I never played in heat like that. Uh, yeah, I never played with you know the caliber of players that I was playing against. I never played. You know, I was, I went into we had a couple kids from. Obviously, we had some Dominicans. We had some Venezuelans. We had a couple kids from uh, Japan. Uh, we had a couple kids from Italy. Like, I, I, heck, I, I didn't know it. How, how am I supposed to catch somebody that can't speak English, right? Like, this is a complete adjustment. Like, all of that stuff was way too much for me initially, right? I needed some time. I needed to get – I couldn't be productive because – one, I wasn't a good enough player, but it was just so much stuff that it became uh, somewhat overwhelming. Like, um, and, you know, I, I didn't play very well initially. And I, I think the organization was very aware that, hey, man, this is a guy from the Northeast. He hasn't played much baseball. He missed a whole year because of Tommy John just recently. Like, we need to give them time. We need to be patient. Like, certainly there were some people that maybe, man, what the hell did they draft this guy in the first round for, right? Like, certainly there were some question marks there. Uh, but there was also some people that were in my corner. Like, we know what we have in him. Just be patient. Give him time. Give him time. And, and you know, those people uh, certainly meant a lot and really had my back from the beginning of my career. What was the biggest jump for you? Was it the high school to that 40 games in the GCL? Was it they they had confidence and they send you out to full season? They send you out to Dayton, which is a place that packs out every year. Like what what is the real wake up of this is this is difficult? The catching, the catching, right? Like the catching was very difficult. Like I had trouble just catching the ball. Uh, I was very raw behind the play. I never caught anybody that threw like these guys did. Uh there was time, so our, our manager in Dayton at the time, his name was Donnie Scott, and Donnie um, was a catcher and, and knew the position. Uh, and Donnie was in charge of kind of charting what I did back there. So he had to chart like every single ball that I dropped. 
And there would be times or games where I, I literally would drop like 15 balls. Like they would just knock out of my glove and I would drop them. And Donnie would have to go over the chart, mark one down, and waddle back. You know, he would just, you could tell like it, it was, but he never, he, he never let me see how frustrated that he was with it. Right. Like he was always very positive. He was always, uh, Hey, we got to work. We got to work, you know, let's get some work in. So we would go, get some early work. He turned the machine up. Uh, it was just, I, I was catching guys that I wasn't ready to catch. You know, I just wasn't at that point where, because I hadn't done it. And there was, uh, that was the biggest adjustment, just being able to receive being, and, and I, truthfully, I wasn't receiving at that point. Like I was just trying to catch the damn ball. It wasn't like I was trying to frame strikes or make things look good. Like, I wasn't good enough at that point. I was just trying to survive back there. Was that year fun? Was baseball still, is it still fun when you're? No, no, it's a grind. Baseball is a grind, right? Like, uh, so I watched, I watched the Derek Jeter. uh, I don't know if you watched that. uh, I've watched part one so far. So I watched part, part two. Derek Jeter said, you know, and he struggled a little bit from Kalamazoo and uh, struggled in the minor leagues, had one chair. He said, you got to believe, you got to believe in yourself before anybody else can believe in you. Right. And I had no belief in myself at that point. Like it was like, man, what the heck is going on? Like I, I just had a very difficult time. It was not fun whatsoever. There was fun moments and I enjoyed the guys, but actually playing the game. No, it wasn't fun. Like it stuck because I went, I was just trying to survive and that's all I was doing. Like it was, it was a grind that first year in Dayton, uh, first year in the GCL, like both of them. And I put a lot of pressure on myself, you know, right. Being a first round pick, well, you should be going out there and producing and uh, man, you want to move up. And no, I just needed to survive the day. I needed to get through the game to the point where, okay, I I'm, I'm getting a little more comfortable back there. I'm getting a little bit better back there. Uh, and I thought by the next year in uh, high A, the Florida State League, you know, I thought that I was okay behind the plate. I wasn't great, but I could survive and I could play the game. And uh, I could make it through without making myself look like a fool. That's what I felt like whenever I was in Dayton. Man, I look like an idiot back there because I can't even catch the freaking ball. So – by the next year, I got to the point where it was like, okay, all right, I can catch the ball. I'm, I'm okay back there. I'm not looking like a fool. So that helped for sure. But it was not fun. That was first couple of years stunk. I hated it. You know, you think about quitting baseball. You think, what the heck am I going to do now? Um, yeah, all that stuff. All that stuff goes through your mind. And with that, you're, you're 20, 21 years old. If you had gone to, you know, you still would have been in college at that point. In college, like even if you're playing baseball, it's a lot of the focus is on lifestyle, what you're doing that weekend, who you're hanging out with, kind of growing as a growing as a person. You have a job. It's a cool job, but it's a you've got to find a work life balance. What is finding that work life balance when you're still kind of just learning about yourself as growing into adulthood? Oh, I didn't have one, right? Like my only focus was on baseball and that was it. Like that was my life at that point. And and I remember a comment that my uh my agent made and you know, I think that Bryce Harper was 2010 draft and he said, well, heck, 
if you would have went to college, you know, you'd have been up there pick maybe right with Harper. And I say, have you watched me play? Like I suck. I, I'm terrible. Like, I don't know what is going on, but I wouldn't be picked anywhere. Like I'm lucky to be where I'm at right now. He's like, well, you'll see it's coming. It's coming. And uh, there wasn't one. And I think that that can be good and bad, right? Because that was my only focus. I was going to do whatever I could to figure it out. And I was going to put in all the work that I had to, to figure it out. So, but that can wear on you too, right? Like if that's your only thing that you care about uh, and you stink at it, because I did the first couple of years, I was bad. Uh, that wears on you, right? But I always felt like, okay, I had a good sense of what I needed to do to get better. And I just focused on that and tried to do all that and, and get to the point where, uh, you know, I ended up becoming a pretty good player. Yeah. Heading into the 2010 season on the, your, your preseason BA scouting report, you're number 30 on the Reds. Reds I think I was lucky to prospect. be number 30. They just put me in there cause I was first round pick, right? Like, I mean, I they, they, they even say in the report that some scouts were struggling to see the, the player that you were, you know, what you were in 2007, you end that year. How, like how long into 2010 were, were you able to say, wow, things are going to be different this year? Yeah. Like three games, three games. It was like, all right. I, you know, the thing that really helped me out that year and I wasn't happy about it at the time. So the organization said, all right, you know, go work on this, this, and this, you come back to spring training and we're going to give you an opportunity to play in double A. So I said, all right, I want to get to double A. That's the next step up. I'm only a couple places away from the big leagues at that point. And just for context, you'd hit 228 in high A the year before. Yeah, I so saw. It's a I mean, I wasn't step. a good player. I wasn't a good player. Like I didn't, I, I was just surviving. And, and the Florida State League is difficult for a number of reasons, the park, the heat. I felt like I was getting better and I felt like I hit better than what my number showed in the Florida State League. Uh, but yeah, you're 100% right. Like I, I probably didn't deserve to go to double A. And the organization said, you're going to have an opportunity. I had, a, I had a good beginning of spring training. I went to big league camp, uh, had a little big success on that side. Felt like, okay, you know, they're going to give me a shot to go to double A. Literally, like the day I got sent down to the minor league camp, they sent me on the high A roster. And I was pissed. Like, I was pissed. Uh, and that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Because I took that and I said, okay, well, I'm going to show these blah, 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 that I belong in double A, right? So I, that was the absolute best thing because I was repeating the year. There were some new guys coming up. I had confidence at that level. I had, I was finally catching up like age-wise to the guys that I was playing against. Uh, and it was like, all right, I'm going to blow this league out of the water, right? Like I, I feel confident I'm ready to go. First couple games down in minor league camp, I hit like, two or three homers, you know, like, all right, let's go. Just get the season started and I'll be good. I want to say like opening day there, I had a couple hits. Um, it was very apparent to me, like right away, like, all right, this is different. I'm ready to go. I belong here. I'm going to show these guys what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I mean, and right away, I, I think I took off that year and, uh, we were in Lynchburg, which was a way better park to hit at than what it was in uh, Sarasota. 
uh, the Florida State League. So that was, you know, that was just kind of lucky. If I had repeated the Florida State League, who knows what kind of numbers I would have put up. But um, it, it, it all came together, and, you know, I felt very confident that, uh, all right, yep, this is it. This is what it's supposed to be like. And that was fun. That was a lot of fun. I like using the, the video game analogy sometime, like you're playing Madden or you're playing MLB The Show, and it's like year to year, this guy got eight more power 10 more contact, whatever it might be when you're at the plate in 2010 and you're, you're hitting, you know, you hit your way out of high a in 43 games, you hit 335. You almost like you had over a hundred points on your batting average at that point, more home runs, more everything. What can you do? What is happening that is, that is different? Like where have you improved besides just the confidence? Like what are you, are you spitting on more pitches out of the zone? Are you able to, you know, have a better idea of what's coming. Like, where did you see the improvements of like, wow, I, I didn't do this much last year. I didn't. And I think that you're right. Like that can happen for guys where maybe they just struggle identifying pitches and they get more experience. Doing. I always felt like I knew what pitches to swing at. I just felt like my swing never put me in a position where I could drive the ball. Right. Like previously. And I started to figure that out the previous year in high A, where, okay, I'm able to, go get some power whenever I need it. Uh, and, and it was just a matter of squaring balls up, squaring balls up. And I finally got to a position with my swing and my timing, whatever it was. We had a good hitting coach at the time that I got along with very well. And I was just in a really good position to hit. And, you know, I was just able to square balls up. I always felt like I had a pretty good, I could identify pitches, right? Like I could, I, I swung and missed every now and then, but you know, um, I knew what pitches to swing at. So that wasn't the issue, but that can be for some people. Uh, it was just a matter of, okay, now the ball's really taken off off my bat. Like I'm squaring pitches up. Um, it, it was just, uh, it was night and day, right? Like that, that experience that I had in high, but you know, if they hadn't sent me back, right. Would I have the same mindset? I don't know. You know, that's a good question to ask. I, I, I don't really know if I would have been a, had that same mindset if I would have went to double A, right? Like that was the best thing that they could have ever done. In that the 2010 season when you eventually you make it a double A, 2011, you you have you have two two essentially full seasons. You're over 100 games for the first time, you know, fully healthy, playing well. At that workload, that that season that's it's basically what a big league season looks like. It's a little little shorter, but basically kind of that that catcher workload. How much does catching take at like how long does it take to learn how to keep your body together and and keep your legs under you at that point i was young right like so you don't really think about it you just uh you wake up and run through a brick wall right like i i don't know i just you want me to catch today sure i'll catch i don't give a shit so none of that really went through my mind whatsoever whenever i was in double a or triple a it was just show up to the park and play ball um obviously i kind of learned throughout the rest of my career that, you know, you probably can't do that. But uh, in the minor leagues, I didn't care. Just put my name in the lineup. I'll play as many times as you write me in there. Whatever. Oh, oh to be young. Um, that 2010 year, did you pay attention to the draft at all? They drafted Grandal that year, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, Yaz was uh, – he was the same draft out of high school, and then he went to Miami, and I kind of uh, was picked. So, yeah, I paid attention. I didn't care, right? Like, I knew that at that point, if I keep playing the way that I am, well, I'm going to get to play in the big leagues uh, somewhere, rather with uh, 
I've always certainly wanted to be with the Reds, but that didn't really affect me. At that point, I kind of went through my mind like, well, whatever, man, I'm going to be fine. Like, I'm going to be a big leaguer. I'm going to do my thing. Uh, So I, I paid attention, but that didn't bother me. Does improving your prospect status kind of change life at all? You were talking about how tough things, you know, how tough things were and how you didn't have much of a, a work-life balance. You weren't able to enjoy yourself out of the field. Once you've established yourself at the upper levels, because once a guy establishes himself, when you, when you're a top prospect and you've performed at the upper levels, it's kind of, it's not a, it's not a guarantee, but it's kind of a given, Hey, this guy's going to, he's going to make it to the show. He's going to get going to get a shot at some point. Were you able to kind of, live like breathe a little bit like does that make things easier or if the higher you get is there more pressure that you put on yourself to succeed and more focus on baseball no I think at that point you certainly realize like all right I'm going to get an opportunity um but I wouldn't say that a lot changed right like even though I was a prospect and I may have an opportunity in the big leagues I wanted to have a career right like I wanted to um have a long career and play a long time and, you know, do some of the things that I did, go to the playoffs, uh, go to the all-star game, right? Like that was my focus, sign a long-term deal. Uh, So nothing, I was happier. I enjoyed the game a whole heck of a lot more. Like it was a lot more fun at that point. Uh, But that didn't take away like my focus or just kind of the, fortitude like hey man i'm i gotta keep working gotta keep playing uh it made it more fun that was it when you have success it's fun when you stink it ain't as much fun and and you can ask anybody like baseball stinks whenever you're playing bad right like it's grind it's very difficult uh it's not a lot of fun but if you're playing well man there's nothing better and throughout your career you kind of learn that not to get as high and not to get as low, but as a young player, right? Like uh, you're living on every single game. You're living on every single week because, well, I didn't get a hit today. Holy smokes, you know, Uh, or I got three hits. I'm the best player in the world, right? Like all that stuff goes through your mind as a young player and you learn to control that as you get going. But certainly uh, it didn't take away any of my drive or any of my, uh, know that like, Hey, I got to keep working. Uh, I, I certainly did all that still. 2011, you get, uh, you get to play in, you get selected to play in the features game, which is like Christmas at baseball America. Is that, was that something that was on your radar before, before you got the announcement? Like, is that something that the guys talk about? Um, no, I don't think so. Not really because it's only like one guy from the organization, right? Like, uh, or two guys from the organization. Um, so it affects so few guys that, you know, yeah, you don't really worry about that. So that was pretty cool. The futures game was in Phoenix. I got to fly out there and then they had the AAA all-star game. So I went for right from Phoenix to the AAA all-star game and played in that too. Got a couple of hits in, in those games and that was a cool experience. But at that point, right, like I had in 2011, I'd made it up to AAA for the last two weeks I had already played the first half in AAA. Like, I was ready for the big leagues. I was ready to get called up. Like, uh, all that stuff is cool, but none of that is even half as cool as what, you know, the big leagues are. So that was my focus, and that was kind of where my head was at. All right, let's just get through this, and hopefully I'll get called up in September. Or, you know, if there's an injury, 
before then. But, you know, I was playing every day in AAA. I was putting up good numbers. It was, it, it, it felt like, all right, that's the next step. Let's, let's get to big league. The Futures game at that point, I didn't necessarily care about. Well, in the Futures game, you do get to catch guys who are like the cream of the crop and guys trying to show out for one inning, essentially. Was there anyone whose stuff you caught that you were like, man, I'm going to have to face that guy at some point? I caught Harvey, right? And Matt was the same draft uh, out of high school as me. And then he was a, he went to UNC or he closed in the game. I remember him being at the game. I remember uh, Manny Machado being at the game. And I want to say that, I don't know why I remember this, but Manny, I was wearing turfs. And Manny was like, oh, you can wear turfs in AAA? I said, yeah, I don't know. It's just turfs, man. So he had his spikes on, you know. He thought he had, he had to still wear spikes during stretch. Uh, it was fun to meet those guys, and all that was is definitely cool for sure. Did you get the chance to chat up Piazza at all? I mean, him, like – Yeah. What, what, is, yeah. what is – I mean, he's the – I guess of the – you're, like, our generation, you and I are pretty much the same age. Like, he was the the standard for, for 90s catchers when we were growing up. He was an Italian catcher from Pennsylvania too, right? Like, so that's right up my alley. Uh, so yeah, that was cool. And, and I got to know him a little bit more uh, later on. But yeah, uh, we definitely chatted and we hung out and it was cool. I remember eating breakfast and he was down there. I was like, oh shit, there's Mike Piazza. I mean, the, the goat. Uh, so He's huge. I remember him being huge. Like he's a big dude and he still is big. Uh, I'm like, hey, I'm not quite that big. He's, he's a big guy. He had like his his home runs always look so effortless. Like it looked like just like he's tapping it. Oh yeah, he 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 would just take a swing and like it didn't even look like he knew where the ball was, and then it would hit off the uh, scoreboard at Chase Stadium, right? Like it was just yeah, it was unbelievable, unreal. So that's September. Walk me through the call, first call. Yeah, it was somewhat. Did you know it was coming because it was September? Yeah, yeah, I knew it was coming. Um, whether my agent tipped me off or. You know, I was playing every day down there and I was playing well. So I, and it was different back then, right? Where they actually called up prospects uh, and didn't necessarily worry about the service time. Not every organization did. And I think that, uh, so I got called up. Uh, the manager, you know, he came up to me during batting practice and said, you're going up in a couple of days, you know, let's get through these games, uh, stay healthy, blah, blah, blah. And, that was about it. It wasn't like a, a super exciting or surprise way of telling me. It was just kind of pretty standard. And, you know, got called up and went up there, played a couple of games and, you know, obviously struggled initially, but uh, got to learn a lot and got to see what the, that kind of life is all about. What's more nerve wracking, the first big league at bat or the first inning you're catching the big leagues? Inning I was catching for sure. Who are you, who are you catching? I think they, so this is kind of a funny story, but uh, I was, Dusty called me in and told me, Hey, you're catching tomorrow. You're catching Bailey, Homer Bailey. So I didn't know Homer from, you know, I didn't really know him all that well. And we, we became uh, friends as our careers progressed there, but <laughs> I go, up, so, all right, all right, great. I'm ready. And we were in St. Louis. I go over to Homer. I said, hey, Homer, uh, Dusty said, I'm catching you tomorrow. You know, what What? What do you got on these guys? He looked at me. He goes, well, we'll see about that. So 
he, he must have went and told Dusty that I wasn't catching tomorrow and I didn't catch the next day. Uh, I caught the next game in Chicago. I caught Mike Leak. He didn't want he didn't want a rookie to catch him, right? Like and, and Homer could be somewhat like that and maybe a little standoffish at times. Uh, but rightfully so, right? Like he he's going through arbitration. This is his career. If he's more comfortable with somebody else, well, I need to do a better job of preparing. And uh, so I caught Mike Leak in Chicago, and, and Leak was easy to catch, so that helped too. You're right; like it wasn't a, it wasn't very nerve wracking. And we had we had a relationship, and kind of I caught him in spring training a handful of times, and we always hit it off as far as what to call and how to attack guys. So uh, that was an easy situation where I was I, I had a guy that he could just put in my mitt for the most part. I didn't have to. I wasn't diving back and forth over the plate. So he made it easy on me. But, yeah, it was catching Mike Leak, but definitely catching, right? Like I had way more confidence at the plate where, uh, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll figure it out. And you can't look terrible at the plate, right? You strike out, everybody strikes out. But if you're behind the plate and you're just whiffing balls and you're missing balls, like – you know, that's not supposed to be happening back there. So I was always ner- more nervous on that side. Yeah, it kind of leads into what I want to talk about next, because 2012, you get get more of an extended look there, uh, you know, 54 games in the big leagues. And, and like you said, like catcher, you're you're in charge of this guy's career, basically. You're having to 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 work with a pitcher and being the rookie. You, you had a lot of a lot of interesting names on that on that 2012 Red Staff. A lot of guys with a lot of big league innings, or you know, young guys coming up, starting you know, potentially Hall of Fame careers. Can we do like some word association or just a quick description of what it was like working with a few of these guys? Well, so, <laughs> yeah, we can. That year, I was so the way that Dusty had it set up. I caught Homer Bailey and I caught Mike Leake. And Ryan Hannigan caught Cueto, Arroyo, and uh, Latos. Okay, so and that was the set plan. Like, you knew that going into the year? No. It just kind of happened that way where the first t- couple times through, well, I was only catching uh, Homer, which is somewhat ironic based on, you know, what he did the year previously. Uh, and I and I was only catching Lee. So I was catching two out of the five games. In that year, we had those five games made every start except a doubleheader. Which unbelievable never happens. Does, right? Doesn't yeah, it doesn't happen now. Unbelievable, like that. That will probably, almost certainly, will never happen again. But they pitched uh, 161 out of 162 games. So the way that it was set up, I was catching those guys. Actually, with that, the 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 Ryan Hannigan pairing of he, you know, he'd been in the big leagues for a long time. He's in his 30s. He's he's on the way down. You're the top prospect, essentially coming for that job. What's the, what's the dynamic like there? Like, where are you able to, is there the classic veteran thing, you know, the Jake Taylor to Rube Baker in major league two, is that thing going on or what, what's the working relationship like? No, Haney was a plus, like a very professional um, guy that everybody had a lot of respect for because, you know, Haney had to earn every single ounce that he got uh, out of the game. Right. He was an undrafted free agent or a late round pick. Um, he was always the backup catcher where at every level he was at and he just kept working and grinding. And, you know, so he had a lot of respect in the clubhouse and I deferred to him a lot. And I asked him a lot of questions. Um, I certainly didn't come up with the expectation that I knew everything. Um, we had a really good working relationship and things were set up in that way where he was going to catch three, I was going to catch two and 
we were going to kind of ease my way onto things. And uh, it, it was a very good setup. And, and he and he couldn't have been any better of a guy to learn from. I don't think that there was any, you know, maybe there was inside as far as like, well, you know, this kid, he's not taking my job. But we had a good club also, right? So our focus was on winning ball games and how can we continue to win? I think we won 97 games that year. Uh, so there really wasn't that the relationship was very easy and he, he was a great guy to kind of learn from and, and uh, you know, be part of a catching tandem for sure. What was it like the first time you had to corral Chapman in a safe situation? Yeah. I mean, Chapman, everybody asked me what it was like to catch Chapman. Well, it's easy. I mean, he just put down fastballs and he throws it by everybody. Like uh, I can catch fastballs. Like if he's going to miss, it's going to be up, you know, he's, he's not, he usually just throws it right by the guy. So um, it was pretty easy. I mean, Chapman, Chapman was awesome to catch and a lot of fun and got a lot of excitement, but uh, I never necessarily, I, I, I changed some things whenever I was back there into more of like uh, just a receive only, like I couldn't block out of that stance. And that was kind of an adjustment that I made with our catching coach, but it was easy. I mean, it was, it, it, it was fun. And, you know, Chapman certainly, he, he made things pretty easy just by throwing it. All right. What are you going to go up there, throw fastball, strike everybody out? Well, so kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, what is it like game planning out with someone like Leak, who is not like he was like pitchability guy? Like it wasn't like he didn't have stuff, but he doesn't have you know he wasn't throwing ninety eight. What when you're when you're working through a lineup with a guy who's got that kind of repertoire and and has to has to locate a little more than like a Chapman does. Like how, when you you guys are walking through that process, like how long does it take you to feel good about? I know. I know Mike can do this. I know this is this is how we're going to get our outs with this pitch mix or whatever it may be. Yeah, so that is kind of what I alluded to earlier is just kind of learning that side of the game, right? And it's easy for me to say oh, how to do it now because I learned it, right? But at that time, I did. Mike and I were both kind of going through that process together because Mike had been in the year in the league two or three years, but you know he certainly wasn't. Uh, a veteran, so to speak. And uh, we had a assistant pitching coach at that time, uh, Mac Jenkins. So after every game that I played, Mac and I would sit down and we would watch video of the previous game and he would kind of get my thoughts. Hey, what were you thinking here? You know, what was the, uh, what was the thought process with this pitch? Like that doesn't make any sense. The guy was just late on a fastball. Um, and we would kind of break that down. And that helped me immensely trying to get to the point where I was confident, right, with what I was putting down and confidence with how I was studying, you know, the, the scouting reports somewhat evolved kind of as I was playing. You know, maybe they were a little bit um, simplified at the beginning of the career, and then they became a little bit more nuanced, you know, and uh, you just kind of everybody learns differently also, right? Like I had to learn the best way that I would learn the information. Like I wasn't somebody that could sit in a meeting and listen to the pitching coach uh, go down the lineup and then be able to go out there and regurgitate that, right? Like that, I, I, I didn't learn that way. So I had to write, I had to do all the homework myself. 
and this is, like I said, it's an evolving process. And this is kind of what I involved to was I had to go through and do all the homework myself, write everything down. Um, and that's how I learned how to remember that stuff. And, but at the beginning of my career, right? Like I didn't know that, like, I didn't know that that's the way that I would be able to learn all this stuff. So it was an evolving process and I had good people around me with Hannigan to kind of support me and catching coach was great. And Mac was the assistant pitching coach who did all the scouting reports and he was great in helping me. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily something that I learned right away. I would say by the end of that year and then in the next year, I started to get more confidence in, in what I was doing, but it was certainly an evolving process. That first year, what's the the most surreal big league perk? Like, what's the, wow, I can't believe this is my life moment? No, uh, this is a story. This isn't necessarily like a perk, but so I, we were playing the Yankees, right? And talked about them earlier, but Derek Jeter was my guy growing up. Everybody's guy, right? 90s, they won all the championships. Like, everybody loved Derek Jeter. So he was my favorite player, right? Every Everybody asks, who's your favorite player? Derek Jeter. And so we go to Yankee Stadium, played them in interleague. This might have been even the next year, 13. But this was by far the most surreal moment of my career. So. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Logan Andrusik is on the mound. He's facing Jeter. Uh, I want to say it was a relatively close game. I don't remember if we were ahead or they were. I was catching Andrusik. Jeter like fouled like three or four balls off. Andrusik threw sinkers and slide or sinkers and cutters. But we were just kind of mixing them up. And obviously Jeter wanted something that he could shoot the other way. Uh, so we just kept burying sinkers, burying sinkers, burying sinkers. And he's fouling them off, fouling them off. So I called time, went out to the mound. I don't know what I told Logan on Drusick, but I come back and Jeter says, hey, what'd you tell him? And literally like my mouth, you could, my mouth just dropped and I couldn't say anything. Like I, I couldn't say a word. Like Derek Jeter just asked me, oh, I don't know. I think I just said, I don't know. And it was like, wow, you know, that was pretty cool. And uh, I, I got back in the dugout and I told Jay Bruce was my guy at that time. And I told him and he was laughing and I said, damn, I wish I would have said, just throw one right by this bum. He stinks. Uh, but I obviously couldn't say that in the moment, but that was the most surreal. Like that was the only ever player, you know, obviously played against a lot of really good players, but uh, that was the only guy that was like, Oh, smokes, you know, that's their cheater right there. That's you got starstruck. Cool. So that, that was surreal for sure. Uh, Kind of on that subject, what kind of guy were you behind the plate? Like you talking guys up, you staying quiet. How do you how do you learn to navigate like who you can talk to, who you can't say stuff to? No, I was quiet. I didn't, you know, I always respected their at bats, right? Like I wasn't gonna go out of my way. And there's guys that do like to talk and I would talk to them a little bit. Um, but I never wanted to bother somebody while they were hit and like, uh, I'm just gonna do my job and you do yours and uh, that's about it. But there certainly was some guys that like to talk with him. 
That wasn't me. What about when you get to first base? Because it seems like every single game on TV, as soon as they show a guy getting on first base, suddenly these two guys are in the deepest conversation you've ever seen. Yeah, I, I don't think they're necessarily, you, you know, some guys you get deeper with than others, right? Like uh, some guys certainly have, uh, they like to talk down there and keep the game interesting. Uh, I, w- I would I would chat with them, but not, not anything too far right like i i was always I, I was somewhat slow as i progressed there so i had to uh focus on my base running so 2014 uh things are going well you're the primary catcher you're hitting well what point even if you're like what point are you saying to yourself even if you're not saying it out loud man i want to get into the all-star game yeah to, it, pretty quickly like i mean i was banging right from the beginning right like uh Came off the DL, hit a couple doubles. Uh, the first, I was twenty six for fifty two to start the year, right? So good. I'm batting five five hundred, and I was hurt for like six games. So I mean, I, it was in May, and I was like bad five hundred. It's like, oh shit, this is pretty good. So I I was aware that like, hey, I got to keep going, but you know, this is a possibility. But man, there was some really good catchers that year. You know, obviously uh, that was kind of right in the height of when Yachty was really just crushing on both sides of the plate. Uh, And he had a really good year. I want to say Buster Posey, obviously, you know, at at any time that he played, he had a really good year. He was in the running. Um, Miguel Montero had a really good year. Jonathan Lucroy at that time was a really good player. Uh, so it was it was pretty stacked. Like there was a lot of guys. So I knew that like uh, I got to keep banging. I got to keep it. Uh, so I, I, I would say that like once it got down to it, and then the games were getting you know the All Star game was getting announced. I was somewhat nervous because I, I knew that there was there was some bad dudes you know that were doing some good things as well. How do you find out? Like, do you do you watch the selection show like the rest of us, or does you know, does your manager get a call? Like, how does that how does that go down? Yeah, they call the managers that day. Uh, so the managers always call a meeting uh, the day of the All Star game and just announce who made it, and you know everybody claps congratulations. So yeah, it was that was a kind of somewhat of a standard thing each year, and you know we had a handful of guys: me, Chapman, Fraser, Cueto. Uh, so it was, uh, it, it was pretty cool. And, you know, obviously a, a great experience to, um, finally get to the point where I became a good major league player. Right. Because the previous years I was, you know, I was, uh, I was okay. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily a incredibly productive player and we had good teams. So that made it a lot easier, uh, my first two years, but you know, that third year, you know, I, I, we didn't have as good of a club, uh, but I had a lot of success personally. So that was great. How much obligation is there during the all-star game that it doesn't involve the game, like stuff you have to do places you have to be family. You got to get there, all, all that stuff. Like how, how whirlwind is that? Yeah, there's a good bit of stuff and, uh, the tickets are expensive as hell. I lost money going to the game, you know, cause they only give you per diem like thousand bucks. I, well, I bought tickets for what, my family and, uh, so it's not like a, it's not like a home game where you get a couple tickets for for folks. You you're out of pocket on everything. Yeah, you had to pay for it. So uh, it, and it was fine. I wasn't too worried about it. But it there was certainly a lot of stuff. But 
also like the game doesn't matter. Like what, I wasn't really concerned if I went up there and I struck out, you know, I wasn't really concerned. Uh, I was just thankful to be invited. Uh, Mike Matheny was the manager and I was a manager selection at that time. I don't know how they do it anymore, whether even that's a thing, but uh, he was a former catcher and uh, he mentioned to Brian Price, man, he's really improved, especially defensively. And he was obviously a gold glove catcher. So that meant a lot coming from him. And I was thankful to, uh, you know, thankful to be appointed by him. That was, that was really nice, um, a gesture by him. How do you decide what kind of vibe you're going to put out in the home run derby? Because there's, there's like guy on his phone recording guy, or I guess even, you know, maybe guy, like it used to be guy on the camcorder. There's that guy. There's the guy who's, you had Todd Frazier in there. So you could be the guy fanning down your teammate, bringing the Gatorades. There's hanging out with kids guy. Like, how do you decide okay, this is my move during the derby. Well, I didn't have kids at the time and uh, Frazier was in the Derby and he was my, he was, Frazier was my boy and still is, but uh, I didn't, I was never, I was not going to seek out the camera, right? Like that wasn't my style. So I just stayed in the back. I think I brought out Todd at Gatorade at one point, but I didn't try to get on camera. None of that. I was just hanging out. That's that's a good move. The the teammates always cut. You know, you, the guy shows up with the Gatorade. One has the towel. One's doing like the. the- I felt weird, but I felt like I had to go out there too, right? Like you, I think Alfredo Simon got appointed to the game, and you know he was a little more flashy, so he was happy to be out there with Todd and fanning him down and all that, like you said. But yeah, I I, uh, I just kind of hung out and got to enjoy it, and it was cool. It was a lot of fun. That was uh, Spettis one. I, yep, think that, yep. I think that was either the – he went back-to-back. Back. I can't remember if that was the first one or the second one. But. Yeah, I mean, Stanton was in it, and he just hit balls, like, further than you could possibly ever imagine hitting a baseball, right? Like, it was, it was absurd. Did that last Still weekend. Does. Yeah, did that last weekend. Still does. When a guy is up like that, like, in the major leagues, there are more guys than anywhere else who – they if, if any mistake, they can hit 500 feet. When when you're calling pitches against like danger, Stanton is just danger. How how much is attacking a guy versus not making a mistake? So my first experience with Stanton was uh, in the Florida State League, two thousand and uh, and nine, and you know obviously I think that this guy. He was a big prospect, and he was the same draft class as me. He was like a second rounder, uh, and he had like thirty nine homers the year before. And uh, well, the guy gets in the box, and the first foul ball they hit, me wasn't even on it. Like he just hit it like a foul ball. The way that it came off his bat, it was like holy smokes! Like that—that's got to be an aluminum bat or something, right? Like. That is, that's just, the ball doesn't come off people's bat like that. Like that, that, that's different. So I don't know, you know, I don't remember what he did, but obviously he had the, you know, and is still having an unbelievable career. But I think that whenever you get uh, to the big leagues with the information, to me at that time, and, you know, obviously it's been some time since I played against him, but when he was in Miami, uh, he was more of a guy that you make your pitches and you can have success, right? Like if you stay out of the middle part of the plate, 
you can sink balls in on them. You can throw a lot of stuff going away from them and you'll be okay. If you leave something in the middle, right? He'll hit at 700 feet. Uh, but let's just really be focused on hitting our spots. Let's really be focused on getting to the corner parts of the plate. Um, and we can have success that way. And, and if we walk them, great, you know, no problem. But uh, he was all, he was always someone that I always felt confident going into the at bat because, all right, you know, let's make our pitches and, and, uh, and, and we'll have success. And, and that's probably 98% of the league, right? Like you know how you want to attack this guy and you make your pitches. Sure. They may get some hits and, you know, most of the pitches that are hit in the big leagues are going to be mistakes. Uh, and, and those are going to happen. Um, but let's just make our pitches and we'll be successful. And, you know, that was kind of always the way that I looked at it. And shoe on the other foot kind of thing. You're trying to figure out how to get these guys out and how to pitch them and stuff. Like when you get up to the, to the dish, did that give you a better idea of how guys were going to attack you? Like, does that, oh, does that yeah. change while you're in the big leagues or a guy's trying to your entire career kind of feeding you the same stuff, get trying to get you out the same way? Yeah. I mean, I was pretty straightforward as a hitter, right? Like I was up on the plate. Um, and my goal, I'll give you a ball on each corner of the plate. If you make a really good pitch inside, you'll get me out. If you make, and mostly everybody just stayed away, right? Because everybody has a little more success making pitches uh, to the away part of the plate. But if you just stay away, throw me breaking balls, throw me fastballs away, uh, yeah, I'll probably get out, you know? And and I was okay with that. I wanted to hit pitches in the fat part of the plate and do some pull side damage on them because that was really, you know, the only thing that I was good at uh, was – driving the ball to the pool side. So I knew how people were going to attack me. And if they made their pitches, I was almost certainly going to get out. But if they left it where I can hit it, you know, don't miss them. You know, that was, that was really my approach. And maybe, maybe that's why I'm doing the interview now. That's my approach, but uh, it is what it is. And, and I had a little bit of success there and, uh, but 14 was the same way. If people made pitches on the outer part of the plate, you know, they'd get me out and and I was fine with that. So, I mean, with that 14, you, you lead big league catchers and home runs. You put up a 4.9 war season, all-star, you're 26 years old. That off season, how does a contract extension come together? How does it come together from your perspective? Yeah. I wanted to win the silver slugger that year too. And I was kind of upset. You got MVP votes though. Buster Posey won the silver slugger, but he played 40 some games at first base. It should have been just uh, Silver Slavica for catcher should have been only the game. You should have only been able to consider the games when you're catching. That's my opinion. So I would have liked to do that. But, uh, yeah, so we went into the offseason. Uh, and obviously, I was going into arbitration. I felt like it was really good timing. Uh, the organization had shown faith in me, kind of given me the job. Uh, behind the plate without necessarily the numbers in my first two years. Uh, and I, I was understanding how to be a big leaguer. I was understanding what I needed to do behind the plate, uh, all, all that stuff. You know, it just finally felt like everything was coming together, right? Like my career was headed 
where I hoped it always would be. And so you, you signed that extension. Um, so you're, you're locked into Cincinnati for the next four years. Um, you've, you know, you've reached a, a certain level of financial security. 2015, how, a question I ask kind of often on the show, how long were you hurting before you actually went on the IL? Yeah. So that off I'll, I'll go, I'll tell a story about the extension. So I got married there in November of that year. We were on our honeymoon uh, and they had kind of said, Hey, you know, we're interested in doing some things. So I get my, like I got married the next week on the honeymoon. I got uh, a long-term contract sitting in my email, like when I was sitting by the pool. So it was like, you know, that was fairy tale. Feel, right? feels like, good when you, when you pay the honeymoon bill too. It is. <laughs> yeah. Here, here sign. Let, we want to sign you for 30 some million dollars. And you know, just, uh, it was unbelievable, right? Like things couldn't have possibly been going any better. Um, so we ended up figuring out a long-term deal and I was very happy with that. You know, obviously set for life. And you know, this part, like, that never changed the way that I worked, right? Like I wanted to work harder to prove that I, I belonged and prove that I was worth that deal. Uh, it never changed one thing about the effort that I put in. I stayed in Cincinnati every single year in the off season because I thought that was the best place that I could possibly be to train and the best place that I could go and get better. Uh, so you Go into the next spring training, obviously, you know, maybe bad third or fourth, have a lot of high expectations. The all-star game was in Cincinnati. All right, that's the plan. Make the all-star game, right? And uh, I don't know. It was it was like fifth game of the year. And before the game, like, I couldn't get loose. Like, my hip was – it was, like, locked up. Like, I just wasn't moving. I couldn't get in the crouch. Uh, played the game probably played another couple, two or three games until I finally said something to somebody. And uh, so they, I don't know that I actually had to come out of the game, but the doc checked me out afterwards. And, uh, you know, it, he had me like, I wasn't screaming, but I'm, holy smokes, you know, that that's some real pain there. So the, it was, it was just anytime I internally rotated my hip, it would just kind of, everything would clamp together and I would have a real pain. Well, when you're in a crouch, you're kind of in that position, right? So I felt it for seven, eight, 10 games. Now I didn't play that much that year. I don't know how many games I ended up even playing, uh, but we tried to rehab it and we tried lubricating shots, cortisone shots, PRP. You know, I probably got eight, 10 needles in my head, you know, at that time, they weren't catching me and I was pinch hitting every now and then. Um, I was trying to DH. They tried to play me in left field. We were doing anything we could to kind of get through the season. Uh, it became apparent that like, hey man, I ain't gonna be able to catch. Uh, team wasn't having a ton of success. So I ended up having the surgery there in June, but yeah, we were just trying to do anything we could to get my bat in the line. And, and I, it was certainly affecting my swing and I just didn't have any legs. And, uh, it, 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 it that, that, that was kind of the start of the grind for sure. Uh, that, that was tough, but Hey man, all right. Signed a four year deal. No problem. We'll get this back up and running and we'll be ready to go next year. No problem with the team. Didn't, 
you know, we weren't in playoff contention. So, uh, all right, let's focus on next year and I'll stay in Cincinnati. I'll rehab here. I'll be ready to go. How much more difficult mentally is it when you have a second severe injury? The first one, all right, fine, right? Like, no problem. I can still run through a wall, right? And that was kind of always my approach. Whatever. I'll, I'll figure it out. Uh, I can do anything. Like, all right, you know, I remember Brian Price. Uh, we had, uh, I think we had like a late game. Like, we finished the game at like 1.30 a.m. And we had a noon game tomorrow. He said, hey, you want to catch tomorrow? And I said, sure, I'll catch. I don't care. I, you know, whatever. I'll do anything. And then the next year was somewhat of the same story, right? Like uh, we were in Chicago, I was hitting BP and my goodness, like my, my left shoulder. And it, it was just barking, like real pain, like legitimate pain. And went up in the training room, they checked it out. Um, Went to see the doctor, MRI. All right, now we go through the same thing. Let's get some shots and see all this works and, you know, try to play through. And that one was even worse. Like, I wasn't remotely close to the same player with that shoulder. And uh, so when you, when you tore saw, your UCL in high school, it was a pop. It was, I, I got hurt. I knew it. This yeah. was just stuff that came, like, deteriorated and came out of nowhere. Just wear and tear, essentially. Yeah, it was just all wear and tear. Uh, why that happened the way they do, you know, I don't know, but, um, the way that it was described to me was it was just wear and tear and, you know, these things just, uh, can happen to people. Right. So again, the second one was different, right? Like the second one took a lot out of me. It, first of all, the shoulder is way harder right? The hips are somewhat of a stable joint. The shoulder with the range of motion, it was a lot tougher of a rehab. Like it just felt like it was not getting better, not getting better. The, he, he, they knew that I needed surgery. They went in and it was even worse kind of than what they expected. I mean, it was torn completely all the way around. Like there was very, there was no labrum intact. So they had to put a, a couple extra anchors, uh, and it was so tight. Like I just didn't have any range of motion in my shoulder for a long, long time. Go to hit in the off season and, uh, man, it's still hurt, you know, like this, something's wrong here. Go back and Hey, the range of motion is not there yet. You just got to keep going with it. Uh, that, that one was, you know, that one really took a lot out of me, that kind of, just didn't the game wasn't fun anymore right after the shoulder I knew that I wasn't the same player I couldn't get in the same position to hit that I used to be able to I didn't feel like I had the same amount of zap uh, that one that one was tough that really took a lot of my joy for the game kind of uh out of it for sure so when you when you are able to be healthier, as healthy as you can be in those kind of those years after 2016, when you, when you're at the ball, whether it's the rehab games or the, the big league games, we kind of talked about, um, you know, your, your idea at the plate, what you're trying to do up there when you were at a hundred percent, when you were an all-star, how does that change? You, you said you don't have much zap anymore. How does that change what you're trying to do? Does it feel it, it kind of the way you're talking? It sounds kind of like, 
when you were in Dayton, just trying to survive? Was it the same? No doubt. hundred percent. Very similar concept. So the way that I kind of realized that things were different, I couldn't hit the fastball, right? Like I had to cheat to get to a fastball. I never had to cheat to get like people could get me out on breaking balls, but yeah, it didn't matter if you threw a hundred and fourteen there or at, really that was the only year that I was any good with 2014, but I'm getting to your fastball, right? Like you, you don't have enough fastball to get one by me. And after the shoulder, right. It, it was never like that. I had to become more of a guest type hitter, right? Like I had to cheat to get to the fastball. And if they threw some, and I had to, because I had to cheat to get to the fastball. Well, I also had to guess breaking ball, right? Like if, so I became more of a guest type hitter and, uh, but man, it was, that was the most discouraging thing for me was I can't get to the fastball. Like, you know, what the hell is going on? I never had a problem. I never had to think about getting to the fastball, right? Like that was just automatic. And, uh, so that became discouraging and you just kind of, um, try, you know, the thing about, uh, in the big leagues, right? Like, you're never the same. And I think that this goes for a lot of players, not just guys that were injured like me, but things are always evolving. You're always trying to become a better player or a different player or figure out a different way to do things, right? Like you can't um, sit there and try to mimic the swing that you had two years previously. Like it doesn't really work like that. You just have to figure it out at the moment. So um that was kind of where I was at, always trying to figure out how I can be successful and figure out how I can make this work. And, um, you know, the next year I ended up having, I broke my foot. I had a, I had a little bit of success where I wasn't completely awful, um, but I still wasn't the same type of player that I was in 14. I knew that, but I knew that I had to figure out a way to be a half decent player and figure out a way to be successful um, and then I got hit in, hit in uh, Wrigley Field and with a curveball and broke my foot, and that ended my year that year. So, um, yeah, it was really three years of just kind of frustration and took a lot of the joy that I had for the game kind of out of it, right? Did you have to deal with any negative fan noise? Because there's always the what I think the worst kind of baseball fan who are like, you know, capping for someone else's money and being like, oh, this guy's making all this money and can't play and stuff like that. Did you oh, have to deal with I'm any of that? I'm sure that that was out there. I don't know how much I paid attention, but I deserved it, right? Like I was getting paid all this money and I wasn't producing. Like I can empathize with somebody that would look at it that way because uh, they there's an expectation that the organization, there's an expectation that the fan, there's an expectation that the other players in the locker room have, right? Like, I should have been a better player. I should have been producing. I should have been helping the team win, and I wasn't. So that I, I never had an issue with that because um, I should have been doing those things, right? Like that was what my expectation was. Nobody was ever going to have higher expectations on me than what I had personally. So shit, I I didn't live up to my own expectations. So all that stuff I thought was that's deserved, right? Like I I think that uh there should be people upset that I'm not producing. I, I can, I can understand that from your perspective of, you know, your own expectations, but as, yeah, as, yeah. Nobody, yeah. I, I, it, in, 
fans have the right to voice their opinions about players on their team. That's my opinion. The they pay the money, they can say and do whatever they want, right? And some people may look at that, but they're fans of the team. They deserve that. I, I think that uh, my expectations were always going to be higher. My expectations were always going to be more. So, yeah, I was disappointed too. I was disappointed that I didn't live up to my contract. I was disappointed that I didn't help the team win ball games. You know, all that for sure. With that, within those couple of years, you do quite a few rehab stints, just going going back down or whatever. And something I, I haven't talked about enough on this show or had enough. Like, is there responsibilities of rehabbing player coming year? big league all-star Devin Mezzarocco. Is there any sort of, you know, responsibility to come down, offer mentorship, um, you know, be anything to those guys other than, other than a pit stop, or is it just like, Hey, pick up the spread and, and be a nice guy. I don't think that there is necessarily like if I was a rehabbing or if I was a player in the minor league and somebody came down to rehab, like, they don't owe me anything, right? Like they, even if they didn't buy, whatever, man, like those guys, that's their career. So if they need to come down and take our reps and do our things, by all means, like, you know, they deserve that because they earn that right. But I always tried to do things the right way and talk to guys. And uh, I spent a lot of time rehabbing there in 2000. I was, I was part of the team basically. And, uh, with the Blue Wahoos, Pensacola Blue Wahoos, that would have been 2017, I believe, the beginning of 17. Nice stadium uh, out there. Oh, it's beautiful. I could have stayed there forever. No state income tax down there in Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, Living the dream out rehabbing in Double A. It was great. So, but I always, you know, they had some good pitchers. Luis Castillo was there at the time. Robert Stevenson was a big prospect at the time. Tyler Molly was there. Uh, so I tried to make a difference for those guys. I tried to make a difference for the catcher. You know, I, I always felt like it was important to do things the right way and treat people the right way. Um, and I, and I, I, I don't, but I wouldn't say that rehabbing players have to do that, right? Like this, their career, you know, do it however you wish. But I always felt like I tried to do things the right way. Baseball is a, biz, a, a business. I mean, you end up get, being traded with that you were a you were a member of the organization for you know for over 10 years is are they are the reds were they just your employer or is there something more that goes into it when you are a member of the organization i would like it to when you're young right like the reds are your first girlfriend yeah it, it means a little bit more right like you care a little bit more about um uh, the success of the organization you care a little bit more you're not nearly as callous as guys later in their career that have bounced around right like things are more meaningful you everybody thinks that they're going to be with their first organization for forever you know unless you get traded early and you kind of learn the business side of things but i'd spent a lot of time with the reds i had spent 10 years right like i grew up uh became a man with the organization right so like that meant a lot to me I thought that the Reds always treated me unbelievably, right? Like the organization uh, developed me. They cared for me. Uh, it was it was certainly tough at the time kind of moving on 
uh, and I was excited about it because I was going to get to play a little bit more and the Mets had a better record at the time. Uh, but certainly like you expect, when you sign a long-term deal or something like that, you expect to be a pillar in the organization for years and years. Like Joey, like, like Votto, right? Like, uh, obviously that doesn't happen nearly as much, but that was kind of my expectations is, Hey man, I'm going to be here for a long time and be very productive and uh, go into the Reds hall of fame one day. Right. Like that was kind of what my expectations were and things didn't work out that way. Uh, it, it, it is what it is and things kind of, uh, you know, whenever I got traded that day or the next day, I got traded, got to pinch hit, and then we played a day game the next day. Mr. Castellini, the Reds owner, uh, he called me up into his big office and I had never been up there in the stadium and just kind of thanked me for my time and thanked me for the way that I uh, went about my business. And, you know, he said, we traded you we hate to lose you. We thought this would be a really good uh, opportunity for you. And that played a role in the trade. And, you know, that kind of meant everything, right? Like, uh, you try to do things the right way. You try to treat people the right way. And uh, I, I really think that kind of that, him reaching out and saying all that, you uh, really put a nice cap on my career with the Reds and, and really kind of, ended things in good terms. Did you, did you evaluate your trade at all? Cause it's on the surface. It's a really, it's an interesting trade. I mean, if it had happened in 2014, it would have been an absolute blockbuster. Uh, you for Matt Harvey. Well, at the time I was, I was, I was wanting to see how much of the money, cause I was making more than Harvey at the time. I was wanting to see how much money that the Mets would have picked up. And you know, Matt Harvey was just DFA, right? So uh, he, nobody wanted him, essentially, uh, or they didn't want to pay him his salary. And so when they didn't pick up any of my money, like extra, the Reds paid the whole freight. It was like, oh, shit, all right, well, I'm, I'm as good as a guy that just got DFA. So that's great. You know, that's perfect. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Harvey obviously was in a similar situation where he's had some – years of his career that were unbelievable. And he had a way more success than what I had as a player. Uh, but he had, he was kind of hurt and had some issues and wasn't quite the same guy. So, you know, the Reds needed some pitching at the time. They had a bunch of young pitchers that they were rolling out and uh, the Mets needed a catcher. So in Tucker was there, Tucker Barnhart was with the Reds and he was playing great. He deserved an opportunity to play every day. Uh, so, yeah, I was super thankful for the trade. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, Harvey, obviously, man, he was the guy there for a bit. And um, it's kind of unfortunate the way that his career kind of turned it out. And, but it is what it is. That's baseball. Mm -hmm. Can't not ask what it's like to uh, catch Jacob DeGrom because – No, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. No one so, him. whenever I got – I got called – we had DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler, Stephen Matz, and uh, Jason Vargas was starting. And Vargas, uh, you know, obviously a good pitcher, but completely way different than all those other guys. And you get over there, and it's like, my goodness, like this is what it's supposed to look like. I had we had we were churning through some young pitchers there with the Reds, and you know, guys that uh, 
didn't necessarily belong. And we were just trying to figure our way through things after, you know, we had lost Cueto and Latos and, and all those guys. Um, but it was like, my God, this, this is unbelievable. Like I, I knew right away that like, okay, the way that I can make an imprint on the team, I got to get the most out of these pitchers, right? If we win, it's going to be because of pitching. Like we're not uh, necessarily going to outslug these, anybody with a decent lineup, but my, these guys are, can really, you can win any, any day. So the first couple starts, I caught DeGrom, and he wasn't what he is now, right? Like, at that time, he was, like, 94, 95, threw curveballs. I think he's eliminated that. He threw a lot more change-ups. So he was really a four-pitch guy that could throw anything in any count, both sides of the plate. Like, now he throws 100, 101, and he throws sliders. Everything's glove side, right? Like, he, he – the game has become too easy for him that he just has had to simplify. It's amazing that you like you're talking about like he's gotten better. Like that year, he had a one seven ERA. The year you were in New York, well, I think uh, like ERA plus, it was like one of the top fifteen seasons like of all time since they you know since like the stat has been invented. Yeah. Like it was just on two eighteen ERA plus uh, nine point nine WAR. On baseball, right? Yeah, it's just absurd, right? Like, yeah, uh, that that doesn't happen. So, at that time, he was way he was different. Like, he could do anything, and he had to do everything more so than what he does now, just because the stuff. Well, that's a whole other argument, I mean, a whole other thing to talk about. Just how he's kind of taken off at the age of like 30, 31. I mean, I can't even, you know, I can pair hardly bend over, and I, I can't even play baseball. But yeah. We have the same birthday. Jake and I have the same birthday. We were born on the exact same day. We got married on the same day. Like, and he's just in a complete, he's getting better when like, I'm just trying to hang on. So it was very, that was kind of weird, but he could do anything he wanted on the mound. He, with his slider, his fastball, he could sink it. He could throw comeback two seamers that would like start away to a righty off the edge away and then come back to the plate. He could sink it inside. He could obviously throw anything by you. Uh, his slider, so you could backdoor slider. You could throw it back foot. You could He could shorten his slider up to a little cutter. And we'd throw this against Freddie Freeman all the time. We, he could shorten it up to a little cutter and just get it in on a left-hander's hands. Uh, he could throw change up both sides of the plate. He could throw change up for a strike anytime he wanted. And then we would throw curveballs like 2-0, you know, because, well, you know, you're not, you certainly aren't going to look for a 2-0 curveball against Jacob DeGrom and just steal strikes with it. Um, so there was literally no pitch that you couldn't invent that he couldn't throw at that time. And, and he still could if he, if he had to, but he doesn't. So it was, it was a lot of fun to catch. And we really – you know, at that point in my career, like I talked about, I had a really good feel of how to call a game. I had a really good feel of the preparation that needed to be done to be successful. So, and all pitching coaches kind of do things differently, right? So a lot of pitching coaches will run the meeting and um, a lot of pitching coaches will kind of dictate how you're going to pitch these guys. Dave Island, who was there uh, whenever I got traded over, was somewhat old school and I said, hey, Dave, you know, I, I have a good feel for what I'm doing. 
I'll run the meeting. If you want me to run the meeting, you can put, you can jump in and say some stuff, but, uh, he said, great. I love that. You know, that, that, that would be awesome. So I ran the meetings whenever I got traded over as far as this is how we're going to pitch Ray Freeman. This is how we're going to pitch, uh, you know, Anthony Rizzo, whoever, uh, and it was awesome. And I think that the guys there really kind of appreciated the effort and the work that I put in and Jake and I just really hit the ground running. And so by like the third start, he went into the manager's office and said like, Hey man, I really want this guy to catch me the rest of the way. And so like every fifth day, like that was, that was all I was focused on is how, how we can put together the best game possible so that, you know, Jake can win the Cy Young. He hadn't won one that time. And that was really his focus. And uh, I really just kind of dove into that side of things. And uh, again, I couldn't hit the same way, but I knew that that kind of, you know, potentially could have helped me in the future as far as, you know, being showing those guys that they have success. And, you know, Jake had in, you know, the other catcher at that time was Kevin Plawecki and, you know, me and Paul had a good relationship and he did a lot of homework in the same way that I did. And we really had a, I felt like a, we did a good job of getting the most out of the staff is what we could uh, from a catcher's side of things. And, you know, Zach Wheeler had, and, and Zach's obviously gotten better too, but uh, he had one of his best years up until that point. Stephen Matz had one of his best years up until that point. Jake obviously had one of his best years. So um, that, that was a, Outside of the all-star year, that was probably the most rewarding thing in my career because, uh, you know, I got to enjoy the success of those guys. And that really, that was fun and meant a lot. And you got to, it sounds like go out on a high note. Um, what was the, the linchpin in deciding that, you know, deciding to retire, not deciding not to accept. I, I know. Well, I don't know if I went out on well, a, high note, a, high, a higher note than if like, say you had stopped at like 2017. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That, that year meant a lot. And, uh, that year was kind of a, I was content at that point. You know, I remember having a conversation with my dad that off season and my dad always pushed me and wanted me to do, do work hard. And, and I, and I did like, I can look back on my career. I mean, there's certainly things that I would have done differently, but I know that I put in all the effort that I had to Right, Like this wasn't a, this wasn't a lack of effort on my part, the way that things kind of happened. I, I did what I could and I was content with it. And uh, whatever happened from that point forward and things kind of worked out somewhat weirdly, but it, it is what it is. And I was content and I was fine. So you, you hang up the cleats and you go into helping, I guess, a volunteer assistant over at Pitt. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned when you signed the extension, set for life, you're do, doing okay. What why did you decide, Hey, I need to throw myself into something else. So we, um, my family and I, my wife, and we had a son at that time. We, uh, we basically took a year off and I bought an RV. We went across country when went to like nine national parks. We, we, we really had a good time. And I think kind of throughout that process and during the year, I just always felt like I have more to give to the game than I can't take, you know, I don't need to take anything necessarily anymore. Right. Like I, the game has given me a lot. Uh, I'm appreciated of what, you know, I earned and, but I have more to do in baseball, right? Like I'm not completely done. 
with with baseball. Like I, I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to forget about it. I don't want to start a business. Like I still love the game. I just didn't love playing it anymore. The the process of getting ready for it, you know, that stuff just became not enjoyable. So, but I, I still want to be involved in the game. And I saw that Pitt had an opening. Uh, I had somebody that I knew reach out to Coach Bell to see if, you know, potentially could be a fit there. And uh, very thankful for him to even consider me, right? Because I had never been in college, right? Like, I, I didn't know the college baseball. I didn't know anybody down there. Uh, very rarely will you have a former player that never played in college that doesn't know anybody get a volunteer job like I did right away when they're done playing, right? Like uh, that that's someone uncommon. So I'm thankful that, you know, he considered me and thankful that uh, things have worked out, but it's been a, a really good fit up until this what is What has been your opinion of the college game? Like getting to experience that that part, especially like ACC play for the first time. Like how has that, how has that experience been? Yeah, Coach Bell, you know, he asked me that like uh, man, within the first month, you know, hey, what do you think about the college? I said, it's baseball, man. You know, like uh, – Maybe there's certain different in- intricacies about uh, the way that the game is played or the development of the pitchers or the power throughout the line, but it's just baseball. Like it isn't like uh, I grew up playing uh, Legion ball, right? Like th- my father was a coach for 20 years and he coached, he coached baseball too. It's just baseball. You know, I don't think that uh, it, it is – it's not a 180 difference or anything like that, certainly. But also in some respects, right? Like I'm still learning. Like I, I, I'm not uh, completely closed off to learning new things. So there's certain things that may work down here that don't wouldn't work in the big leagues. Uh, I, I'm open to learning new things, and that I've I've learned as much from them as you know. I feel like as what a what I've kind of given. How do you deal with the, the increased stress when it comes to ACC? So like, I'm a big twins fan and like, I want the twins to win every game they play when they drop a game during the season. I'm not, you know, it's a hundred long season, that sort of thing. I have, uh, my wife went to a big 12 school. I have, I've hopped on their bandwagon. So I am just all, all in on them. When they drop a big 12 game, I am despondent. I'm like, Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> like we got regional story about like all this stuff. Like how do you hit? Cause in college, it's like those, those three games that weekend, they matter a ton. I told coach bell, like when you get an ACC play, like every game is a playoff game. Right. Like, and I love that. I love that aspect of college baseball game. Like you shoot all your bullets, you go try to win as many uh, of these ACC games as you can. Um, but I don't get stressed out. You know, this is not – I'm there to support the guys. I'm there to help the guys out. I'm not living and dying on every single pitch. Uh, and some of that is just my personality as well. Like, I don't necessarily – like I said previously, I've learned how to stay more even keeled. Uh, I think that – we have a good balance on the staff where there are guys that are pushing every single day and it is their, you know, livelihood on the line. I kind of probably make things more enjoyable for the guys at times 
and keep things a little bit more light. But uh, it, it is, I do love that aspect of the college game though, where you play 54 games, you get 12 ACC series or whatever it is. Every game is so incredibly important. Like uh, that's what really makes it enjoyable for me is, is those, those weekend series, right? Let's go take two out of three from UVA or go take two out of three from, you know, those things really make it fun. Uh, and that's why that's, that, that has been a, a high point for sure. So wrapping up, if you could give yourself a pep talk at 18, right after signing, what would that pep talk look like? Oh, wow. A pep talk. I felt like, I don't know, this is hard to say, but I was in a good spot where I wouldn't change anything, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself a peck pop, like just let it play out the way that it plays out because I was raised, uh, my parents raised me very well. Uh, I had a good head on my shoulders, like just do what you, what you have been doing do what uh, your expectations are. It would have been nice to play a little bit better earlier uh, in my career, but just go, you know, be you, be you and go out there and play ball. I got a little rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. All right, cool. Favorite minor league ballpark? I would say Lynchburg because that's where I took off. And that, and that park was, I don't remember the park. It was like old wooden fence, you know, it was pretty old school. Uh, but man, I, I just liked hitting there for whatever reason. Favorite big league ballpark? PNC. So PNC is, you know, my hometown stadium, unbelievable, beautiful stadium. But the thing that kind of made it special for me was my grandparents could come down to the game and they were older and, uh, you know, uh, have some have passed away since, but they were, they were at every single PNC game. I got to see them after. So that, that made it very special. Best pitcher you ever faced. Zach Greinke is a guy that I faced a lot. And, you know, at the whenever I started to face him, uh, he had some really good stuff, right? Like uh, just a A-plus slider and good fastball that he could put wherever he wanted. And then, you know, he, he continued to get even better and maybe the stuff kind of ticked back a touch while I was still playing. Not, 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 not that much, but he could do anything. Like he could just make any pitch, very rarely made mistakes. Uh, just was such a pro, you know, on the mound that like you, you knew you were never going to get anything to hit. And he was way smarter than everybody else. Like, you know, if, if you were looking for this, he would throw the opposite pitch almost every time. Like uh, just, just a real, really tough at bat. I feel like we've already covered this one. Best pitcher you ever caught. Yeah, it's Jake. I mean, Jake, I think that, like, the combination of stuff, there's never been a better pitcher in the history of the game, right? Like, I mean, he, he probably has, like, three – I mean, his slider and his fastball or what? That Those are probably, like, 80 pitches, right? Like, uh, those are impossible. Like, nobody throws those. So, the command, the focus, the intensity, the competitiveness, like – and I know he's been a little banged up, but I, I can't imagine there would be anybody that had that would have that combination of everything. Best base runner he ever threw out? I threw out Billy Hamilton before, and it was a 
the Reds, the current Reds versus the Futures game. So he overslid the base and they tagged him on the way back. That was oh. the only way you could get him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Billy, I threw him out. That's a caught one. stealing in the sport. Always, Billy was my Billy was my good buddy. He we would work out. He would stay in Cincinnati as well, and we would work out in the off season. So I, yeah, I always told him I'm one for one. I'm not messing with you anymore. Dumbest thing you spent your signing bonus money on. So I bought a car. I bought a Lincoln Navigator at that time. Oh, those were oh, big at that. 07? That was prime yeah, time for the Lincoln Navigator. They were pretty hot. So I, that was really the only thing that I bought. I bought a Lincoln Navigator. And after like four or five years, I realized like man, maybe three or four years, like, hey, man, they, you know, I'm not a Lincoln Navigator guy. So I bought like a used truck from an old timer after that. And I drove, it was like in 1995 and I drove that wherever. So uh, I realized that like, yeah, that stuff doesn't really make a difference. So uh, yeah, I didn't really buy anything though. This is a, this is a a hot, a hot question. Hot button issue. Skyline chili actually good. So I would get the hot dogs. I like the hot dogs. The hot dogs were really good. They would put all that cheese. The cheese is unbelievable, right? Like uh, the noodles and the chili I tried with the, cinnamon but yeah and it was okay like it wasn't bad but uh, the hot dogs were unbelievable they're good hot dogs i have yet to make it to cincinnati i am i am gonna stay open-minded i'm gonna try it i'm gonna try the noodles and the chili whenever i do i just i you see a lot of a lot of discourse about Skyline cincinnati Chile. is a place that you have to go to right like it is uh i want to see the ballpark from when i got when from the first time i went to cincinnati till the end of my career, like they completely redid everything downtown. Like it's beautiful with the stadiums, the rivers, uh, all the food. I mean, it's an awesome town. Like it really is a, a good place to go to. And the ballpark is awesome. Last question I've got for you. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? I remember I was supposed to go from, and we were in Zebulon, North Carolina, which was like the furthest Northern team. We're supposed to go to Mississippi, and one of the guys, um, it was like uh, 12, 13 hours, and one of the guys looked online to buy a flight to get to Mississippi. So I, we just, like four or five of us just bought flights, and we, we bought them out of our own pocket and just flew over there. So that was good. The This is kind of funny. So I never chewed growing up. Like, I never did snuff. Somebody gave me, I played a game in the GCL and it was 10,000 degrees. Uh, I, I took snuff. This was probably like the fifth time that I did it in my life. Oh, on a bus in Florida? Yes. Oh, I know. It's, on a bus in Florida. And I threw up into the water bottle on the way home. And some of it like got on, it was bad. It got all, the seat, got all over the floor. Like it was, it was a bad deal, but. I've seen it happen. Ugh, that was probably the worst bus ride. I, I was sick as hell the whole time. I I've got to ask about the flight thing because I've never heard that before. Like, yeah, we, so we it's something. So if guy, I mean, obviously, like obviously, certain you know, certain guys, and especially the minors, there's a quite the pay disparity in terms of haves and have nots. Right. So you would be free to take a flight if you wanted to take well, a flight. I mean, I think that that would be at the. Uh, I mean, manager would have to sign off on it. And, and I remember David Bell was the manager, the Reds' current manager at the time. I wasn't the ringleader in that uh, whole production. I was just kind of following somebody else's lead. But 
Yeah, I'm, he must have signed off on it. I don't know. Which airport? Maybe. Well, we, we flew out of Raleigh and then. That's a nice airport. Whatever it was down to Mississippi. I, I don't know where we were playing down there. Maybe the Braves, Mississippi Braves. Well, I don't know where they're at. But uh, yeah, that was that was in 2010. That is a, that is the first. I've n- never had that on that show. Let's let's wrap on that. Devin Mesoraco, thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.